Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's get to it. Genesis chapter 25 is where we find ourselves this morning. We've been working our way through the first book of the Bible. I'd love for you to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to take the one in front of you and the rack and the chair in front of you and keep that as our gift to you. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. You can find it uh, just the few, first few pages. I think we got the page numbers up there, 15 or 19, depending on which copy you have. As you're finding it, let me mention a couple things to you about where we're going the next couple weeks. After today, we have two more weeks in this little block of Genesis that we're working through. Next week, Robert Ward is going to be preaching on Genesis chapter 26. And then on Labor Day weekend, I will finish up this particular segment of Genesis by looking at Genesis 27. Then we're going to hit the pause button in Genesis. The first Sunday of September, we are, I'm just letting you know now, all right, we're going to be talking a little bit about money and some great things that we think are on the horizon for Crosspoint that we want to do as far as reconfiguring some classrooms. You know, last week we had... Uh, over 200 children in our children's ministry and then all the adults that are working with them. So there are, are uh, a lot of people outside of this room at Crosspoint ministering and serving and loving and doing children's ministry. And so we uh, need to expand some space a little bit and reconfigure some rooms. And so we're going to talk about that and the future of Crosspoint, which we're really excited about, on September 7th. And then the, first sun- or the second Sunday of September... We're going to settle down into Romans chapter 8, my favorite chapter in the Bible, probably the most important chapter in the Bible, the Christian life from beginning to end. Oh, it's beautiful. Sometime in there, September, October, you're going to hear from David Baum, who is planting a church here in Columbus that Crosspoint is getting behind and helping him plant, sending him out with anybody from Crosspoint that wants to go. And so if you have not heard about this yet and you feel like God may be calling you to be part of a team to go plant another church here in our city, another station for gospel witness and proclamation and discipleship, I would love for you to consider going along with David and Marie Baum to plant that church uh, here, Lord willing, in the coming weeks and months. You'll hear more about that later. But for now, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 25. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to just settle down on the second part of Genesis 25. The first part of it, we're just going to skim through. I don't even think we're going to read most of it, but we're going to settle down on starting on verse 19 and then work our way through the rest of the chapter. A really important uh, passage of Scripture that establishes a truth that then we see run through the whole rest of the Bible. And so before we get into it, uh, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. And I read this old prayer this week in something I was reading I'm not sure where it came from, but it just resonated with me. So I am going to pray it for us as we open up God's Word. Pray with me. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. What we know not, teach us. What we have not and truly need, give us. And what we are not, by your Word and your Holy Spirit, Make us. And we pray these things in the glorious name of Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. All right, a little catch up before we read in Genesis 25. If I could summarize the 24 chapters leading up to where we are right now in Genesis, I would, I would probably summarize it by thinking or, or outline it by looking at two great promises that have happened so far. Of course, at the beginning of the Bible, God creates all that there is as the pinnacle of his creation. He creates Adam and Eve, mankind, in his image to be his stewards uh, over his creation. Of course, they willingly fall. They reject God's goodness and kindness and sufficiency, and they rebel against him. 
And now sin and death enters the world, and now all of us, as children of Adam and Eve, inherit this, this nature, this fallen nature. But even despite that horrible scene in Genesis chapter 3, God issues a promise, and he issues this promise to the world and to creation as he is cursing the serpent for tempting Eve. And one of the most important verses in the Bible, really the first preaching of the gospel in a sense, the the promise to this serpent and the promise to Adam and Eve comes in Genesis 3.15 when God is speaking to Satan and and punishing him for tempting Adam and Eve. And he says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so right away in the beginning opening chapters of the creation story where after mankind has fallen, God is establishing this promise that there will be two types of people. There will be offspring of the devil and there will be offspring of the the mother, Adam, or Adam and Eve. And God will bring an offspring who will make things right. And so there's this expectation that we're expecting in the early chapters of Genesis When will this offspring come? When will this seed come? And we know as we've been studying Genesis that 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 offspring, that that rescuer who will crush the head of the serpent and make things right continues to get delayed. It wasn't Cain. It wasn't Abel. It wasn't Noah. It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. Ultimately, we're, we're pointing beyond even these fallen human beings. But God then promises to Abraham, uh, a promise as well that he will make a people for himself through this man. He, he chooses to give Abraham grace, not because Abraham is good in any way or more worthy than anybody else, but God comes and sovereignly bestows his favor and his grace on Abraham, and he gives this, this second great promise that we see in Genesis, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. As Abram is, at this time he's called Abram, wandering around in the desert. God says this to them. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So remember, he said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to give an offspring... I'm going to give a child that's going to make things right. It's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we go through a few chapters where how is that going to happen? The flood, boy, these wicked people. Then he chooses Abraham out of the desert. And he, he, he revitalizes this promise. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you offspring. And so we think, okay, things are back on track. But we've been working through Abraham's life for the past 10 chapters. And Abraham, you know, there were some rocky moments. And we wonder if it's going to happen. And He concocts this scheme with his wife when she seems to be barren and he has this child, Ishmael, through this mistress and we're wondering, how is this going to happen? But God is faithful to his promise and in their old age, Sarah, his wife, is in her 90s. Abraham is 100 and finally he gives his promised son, Isaac, who comes as the child of promise. And now, at the beginning of chapter 25, Abraham is going to pass away. In verses uh, 5, 6, and 7 there, we see in chapter 25, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Verse 7, these are the days of, a- of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. And in verse 8, we see Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, a man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. So Abraham has died. Isaac, the new son the son of promise, is still alive. And last, last week we looked at Isaac getting this really match made in heaven, his wife Rebecca. So here we are. We're still wondering if this promise of offspring is going to be fulfilled. Will God continue to move his promise of an offspring and a people that he's making for himself Will he continue to move it along? And remember a couple weeks ago, we know that Isaac and this offspring that Wayne so, so, so clearly teached ultimately points towards Jesus. We're not just looking for a king or a, a prophet or a, a rescuer. We're looking for God himself to become man and die on the cross for us.
But will this promise continue? And now we get to Isaac and his wife and her pregnancy. So let's pick up in verse 19. But before I do that, let me just give you the whole point of today. Okay, we're going to give it to you right up front. Here's the point. Here's the outline. I know. I know. You guys got nervous. Like, oh, he's going to read and he's not going to tell us where he's going. What's, going, what's happening? I know. I've made you dependent on road signs. So here's the one great truth I want us to center on today. And then we're going to ask four questions. One great truth. God makes a people for himself by sovereign grace. Therefore, they can be sure that he will bring them safely home. God makes a people for himself by sovereign grace. Therefore, they can be sure that he will bring them safely home. Let's start reading in verse 19. And at the end, we'll work through four questions that I think just jump out of this text. Verse 19, Abraham has died. Isaac is childless. Will the promise continue? These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So remember last week we talked about the miraculous, superintending way of God of choosing Rebekah. Remember the servant was sent out and prayed that kind of crazy prayer, you know, that we would sort of scoff at and say, oh, come on, praying that prayer, asking God for some special sign. But oh, what great faith that servant showed and God answered the prayer and then Rebekah is brought to Isaac to be his wife. And then in verse 21, even though God made a promise, we see that prayer and obedience was still necessary. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So let's stop there and just notice that just like her mother-in-law, Sarah, Rebecca was barren as well. I mean, we went 25 years with Abraham before the promise of her having a child was actually fulfilled. And here again, we see this woman that God has brought into the life to be the wife of his servant Isaac is barren as well. Friends, it almost seems as if God is intentionally making things difficult on himself. Or he's arranging things so as to eliminate the potential for human boasting. And I think it's not like God, you know, chose Abraham and then his wife Sarah, and he's in the middle of his plan and he's saying, This is going to be great. Oh, man, Sarah's barren. What am I going to do? And it's not like then he rolls the dice again and he's got this boy named Isaac and boy that worked out by the skin of his chinny chin chin and now he's got this wife Rebecca and oh no, she's barren. Friends, see the providential hand of God in all of this eliminating the opportunity for human boastings. Don't you think God still works that way? And so shouldn't that sort of transform the way we even view difficulty in our lives or the stripping away of resources to set up the surprising grace of God? Amen. That was better than just one amen. But anyway, let's keep going. So verse 22. Rebecca, his wife, conce- his wife conceived. Verse 22, then the children struggled together within her. So they're twins. And she said, if it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now that word there at the beginning of the sentence there in verse 22, the children, she's got twins obviously, struggled together. I think maybe a more literal rendering of that original language would be that the the twins were, were bashing each other in the womb. This was a rough pregnancy. The twins weren't just sort of jostling, you know. They were literally bashing each other within the womb. Imagine that ultrasound, right? (laughs) You know, we've been there. I've been there four times now. There's baby A. 
looks like a boy, you know, a little arrow. There's baby B. It's another boy. Oh, oh wait, there's baby A punching baby B in the face. <laughs> That's what's going on here. So what's happening? And the Lord's going to answer this. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. But when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So let's pause there before we finish up the passage and settle down on these four questions. We see that God clearly issues a decree before the children are even born. And he says to Rebekah, there are two manner of people in you. There are two nations in your womb, and the older shall serve the younger. So Esau shall serve Jacob. Friends, this would have been a complete reversal of the order of this ancient culture, where the first son, was explained a couple of weeks ago, I think Wayne explained this to us, that the first son would be, would be clearly the inheritor of all of the father's of the father's wealth. He would be the, the firstborn, the, the one who then takes the family forward. But God completely reverses the order, and he says that this younger son, God, God decrees that this younger son will be the one that will rule over the older. Esau the older will serve Jacob the younger against natural expectations. And Moses is writing this See, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament as the Holy Spirit inspired him and told him the story as it's been passed down from generation to generation. And Moses is writing this to the nation of Israel. And who would the nation of Israel know who Jacob is? Well, Jacob later in the story, as we'll get to eventually in months to come when we read the story of Jacob, Jacob later is called Israel. So for the Israelite reading this in the desert as they were wandering before the, in the, waiting to go into the promised land, being led by Moses in the book of Numbers. Friends, this is the story of the beginning of Israel, where God is setting his saving love. He's setting his grace, his sovereign grace on Jacob, who would become Israel. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which I think means the soup. Stew. Can you imagine that's your name? Like, remembered forever in the Bible? Red soup. Poor guy. Jacob said, seizing the opportunity here, conniving Jacob. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, was he about to die literally? Probably not. But Esau was given to exaggeration, I think. Or he was driven and governed and dominated by the immediacy of his desires. Like many of us. Like me sometimes. I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
Before we settle into these four questions, let's just, just notice the tragedy and the terrible sadness of giving in to instant gratification. Uh, friends, we could, we could, if we had more time, uh, we, could just, we could make a little sermon just out of what's going on there between these two brothers and this, this how, how just this desire for instant gratification just sometimes dominates us and makes us do things and puts us in positions that we never thought we'd be. I mean, just think about the, the clear application of just the desires that we give into. Uh, oh, friends, the terrible and tragic sadness of giving in to instant gratification, that momentary, that momentary counterfeit pleasure that gives way to a whole host of consequences in our lives. We see just sort of spelled out before us in Esau's choice. But here then, let's get into these questions here then is an obvious question, and there's one obvious question that we've just, if we're going to be serious readers of the Bible, we have got to wrestle with this question, and then from this one question, I think flows several more. So here's the first question that, again, if we are going to be serious, thoughtful readers of the Bible, we have to wrestle with, and it is this, why did God choose Jacob over Esau. Let's go back and read it in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. This decree, this oracle that God issues. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And God is issuing a decree. He's making a statement about how it will be before these two twins were even born. So why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Well, clearly, neither one of them were worthy because the next paragraph that we just read displays the folly of both of these men. It's not like Jacob is more admirable than Esau. In fact, I think we could even make a case that he's the more unlikable character of the two. Esau's just kind of this, you know, he's like Pluto and Popeye, you know, he's, he's not real sharp. Good guy to have around in an alley fight, maybe, but he's just kind of, you know, some knives are made for steak and other knives are made for butter. Let's just put it that way. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, right? And although he's driven by his appetites and he has nothing to blame for his situation except his own folly and sin... I, I actually sympathize more with him than this conniving little trickster who you want to take out back and slap around a little bit, Jacob. So friends, God doesn't choose Jacob because Jacob ends up being a better guy. No. So why then does God choose Jacob? Well, let's let the Bible interpret itself. Let's let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Let's go to Romans chapter 9 where Paul establishes the answer to this question and I think teaches us a very important truth. Listen to what Paul writes. Now let me give you a little background here of Paul's argument in Romans 9. Paul has spent the first eight chapters of Romans establishing the gospel he is defending the righteousness of God, saying that God is not, uh, he's not hinging or fudging on his holiness by allowing people to be his people and come to him forever, for eternity, because he's saying that everybody's sinful, nobody can do anything about it, and so God is going to do something about it for them, and he is going to make a people for himself, not by making people just do better, but by sending Jesus, who lived the life that we could not live, who perfectly obeyed him, and then laid down his life as a perfect substitute 
a divine wrath-absorbing sacrifice to extinguish his wrath. So then God is retaining his holiness by pouring out his punishment on the cross, punishing Jesus in our place, and then vindicating Jesus' holiness by causing him to rise from the dead and now calling all people everywhere to turn and trust in him. So he is not, he retains his justice, but he's also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And now... In chapter 9, he's handling this potential objection that people may have, saying, well, if, if the Old Testament people, the Jews, were your people, why have so many of them seemingly rejected Jesus, the Messiah? And he's saying that because God is sovereign in his grace-giving. So in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, listen to how Paul answers the question that came up in Genesis 25 that we just read as to why God chooses Jacob over Esau. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So what he's saying then, he's answering that objection, that all of these Jews who have rejected Jesus in the New Testament time were never really part of God's true people. It's always been through faith, not through ethnicity. So God never was forming a people for himself just because of their ethnicity. He's forming a people through the promise, those that would have faith in him. So the application to us is, is that we're not, we're not Christians just because we grew up in the South or because, you know, our, our granddad was a deacon or our father's a preacher or our mom played the piano or whatever. We went to Sunday school or we got VBS stuff. We're, we are Christians because we are trusting in Christ, trusting in the promise, trusting in what God has done. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, listen to verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So friends, what has Paul just told us? He has told us the humbling, God-exalting, beautiful truth that God chose Jacob and not Esau not because of anything good or bad that Jacob or Esau would do, but because of his own mercy. So, why then, that leads us to the second question, why was this such good news for Israel? Who would have been reading this book that Moses written that we know now no, is Genesis. Why was this such good news for Israel? Well, to get a hold of that, we have to go to Numbers. Don't flip there. Let me just read it. Numbers chapter 20. All right? So years later, after this thing happened with Jacob and Esau in the womb, Moses is writing the first five books of the Old Testament And Israel has been rescued from Egyptian captivity. God has rescued them miraculously through the hand of Moses, parted the Red Sea, 
swallowed the Egyptian captors in the water, and now Israel is wandering around in the desert for 40 years, waiting to go into the promised land. And after Israel's salvation from Egypt, during their time in the desert, they are being attacked by various enemies, a whole bunch of people. One of the people that they're being attacked by most consistently during this time as they're waiting to enter into their rest and into the promised land is this group of people called the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau, who was also called Edom. So listen to Numbers chapter 20, verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, descendant of this other twin who's bashing Jacob in the face in the womb. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and are with our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, remember, Edom, this king and his people are the descendants of this other twin Esau. But Edom said, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through its territory, so Israel turned away from him. Friends, why would this be such good news for Israel? Because Israel, as they are dealing with the present current difficulty of the descendants of Edom, Read Genesis chapter 25, and they can be sure that God has set his sovereign grace on them. Therefore, they can be certain that he will bring them safely home. Do you see that, friends? Reading this story, reading their beginning, reading God's love on them, gave them assurance in the face of their present enemy, who's a descendant of These two twins in the womb, the other child, gives them confidence that God is on their side. And as they dwell on how they began as a nation, not because of anything good in them, but because of God's grace, it anchors them in assurance because if God didn't love them because they were cute or intelligent or smart, which actually means the same thing, so if they were cute and intelligent or strong or mighty, if he didn't love them because of those things, then he's not going to keep loving them because of those things. No, friends, he loves Jacob, he loves Israel because he loves them. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter Seven, where this truth is so clearly articulated, where Moses is giving the law a second time and he's reminding Israel why God has called them his people, why he's made them his people, why he's set his love on them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you speaking to Israel, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But it, was, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Jacob? Because he loved him. Why was this such good news for Israel? Because God loved Israel, not because they were better than anybody else. In fact, they were fewer in number, and in a way less lovely, just like Jacob the trickster. But God loved them because... He loved them, and when Israel reads this and is reminded of it, they know that they were given life by God's sovereign grace. They know that they were brought into existence, 
not because of anything good in them, but because of God who loved them. And therefore, they can be sure on the edge of the promised land as they're enduring difficulty that he will bring them safely home. So then that leads us to the third question. Let's zero it down, because some of you are like, okay, Brad, Israel, Old Testament, you lost me when you started flipping to numbers, Deuteronomy, come on, this is boy, whatever, whatever, whatever. All right, don't be like that, by the way. Don't, don't just be this, like, weak little Christian who never reads your Bible, and whenever they start flipping around to other stuff, you're like, oh, that's over my head. Baloney. The stuff the average American can figure out is ridiculous. You can get on the internet and you can be acquainted with the third string cornerback and his 40 time when he was a junior in high school and you can have all that junk memorized but anytime you start flipping around just thinking about piecing the Bible together you push back and say oh that's too hard. I don't understand it. Baloney! You can understand this. Thank you. So let's zero down now. From Israel... To how this applies to you and me. Why did God choose Jacob and make a nation for himself called Israel? Because of his sovereign grace, not because of anything good in that trickster Jacob. Why is this good news for Israel? Because as they were facing their foe, it would remind them that God started them by his grace and he will bring them safely home by his grace. And so why is this good news for the Christian? Friends, because the giving of grace to Jacob becomes a picture, as Paul explained to us in Romans 9, of how God makes a people for himself, of how God saves all people. Friends, this is the good news. This is the gospel that before time began, the Father planned your salvation. And in time, the Son accomplishes your salvation. Right? We don't deserve it, but Jesus breaks into human history. The God-man, fully God, fully man, where we have rebelled, Jesus completely obeys. And he takes on human flesh, and he obeys God perfectly, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, becoming the perfect man, then laying down voluntarily his beautiful sacrificial life on the cross, where then God takes the wrath that should have been ours and pours it out on his son. And because he's not just a good man, because he's a perfect God, his sacrifice can, can extinguish and satisfy the infinite wrath of God because his holiness is infinite. And so on the cross, Jesus extinguishes the punishment that should have been ours, rises again in victory over death, sin, the grave, and all of its consequences, and now calls every person in this room, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman in the world to turn and trust in themselves and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. And so the Son accomplishes the salvation the satisfying of the punishment that should have been ours and the defeating of death in the grave by his life, death, and resurrection. And then, friends, in our time, in our life, then the Spirit applies that grace by giving us the very thing we need, by giving the gift of faith and repentance so that when we hear the gospel preached, God in his sovereign grace causes us to look away from ourselves and to God. And he doesn't give it to us because we're better than anybody else. He gives it to us because he loves us, friends. Oh, that is good news. He loves you not because you're strong or had more faith or were more useful to him. He loves you if you're a Christian because of his free unconditional sovereign grace that he decided to give you not because of anything in you but solely because he willed it. Friends, learn to love and revel in the sheerness, the aloneness of grace and take great comfort in that because if God saved you because he loved you, not because of anything good in you, when life gets tough and you're on the edge being attacked by your Edomites, you can be sure that he will bring you safely home. What should this produce in us? Utter pride-crushing humility. Right? 
There's nothing good in me. Oh my gosh. I mean, if I could unpack my life and some of the folly of my, oh, friends, you would be stunned. You would stop coming to church here. I guarantee, man, just one of the great things about growing up on the other side of the country in California, all my skeletons stay over there, right? <laughs> Praise God. But, but I don't, you know, God has removed sin as far as the east is from the west, man, right? Come on. This produced utter humility in us. And it should produce worship in us too, right? Because it makes us small and God big. It makes grace large and our strength small. It should produce confidence in us. Confidence in us. If he didn't save me because I was intelligent or had more this or that, then he's not going to give up on me when I'm getting attacked and doubting. If I was made a Christian by his sovereign grace, I can be sure that he will bring me safely home. Right? So it produces humility. It produces worship. It produces confidence. But then it doesn't produce all these things so that we can be kind of a little doctrinal holy huddle where we can say, we understand the Bible better than other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. What it does is then it causes us to have this sort of reckless, beautiful, abandoned, if God is for me, who can be against me, right? So, yeah, he, he saved me by his grace, and he will bring me safely home. So what can man or this world do to me, right? It causes reckless abandon, and we become so enthralled with the beauty of his grace that then he takes our scrappy little lives, and he uses them as a display of his gospel to an onlooking world. And friends, that becomes so much more satisfying than anything else. Do you see how how understanding this actually propels mission and giving our lives away for the glory of God? Oh, that I would believe this more, that my life would be, would be marked by a beautiful abandon for the grace and glory of God in saving me so that it might be communicated to other people. So, so friends, let's, let's, let's do a little application before we answer the last question and land this bad boy. What are you facing right now? What's your greatest fear? Right? Israel was in the promised land getting harassed, bashed in the face again outside of the womb by the Edomites. What about you? What is so big right now that it's eclipsing the glory of God? What is it? What's your greatest fear? What's your greatest worry? What causes you to lose sleep at night? What is it? I want you to take that thing and I want you to sit it up right next to this truth that we've been dwelling on. Stack it up. stack, Stack it up next to the sovereign, beautiful grace of God that guarantees that he will bring you safely home. Put it right next to it. Put it right next to it. And let that thing that seems like a giant right now dissolve, like dissolve in the glorious grace and love of God for you. Friends, if he made you his by his grace alone, you can be sure that he will bring you safely home. Right? And the final question. Why then is this also good news if you're not yet a Christian? Why is this good news if you're not yet a Christian? Did you catch what we read in Romans 9, verse 16? Let me read it again. Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That it there, when he says, so then it depends, is salvation, right standing eternally with the creator God of the universe. 
And he's saying that it, salvation, right standing, eternity, depends not on your ability to will or determine or resolve yourself every January 1st into doing better, but on God who has mercy. And you might object, wait a minute, you might say, you mean that God is the one who determines whether I receive mercy, not me? Yes, friends, and believe me, you want it that way. You want it that way. Because you, like every other person in this room and every other person that existed, if we were left to our own selves, we would choose ourselves every time. Paul writes in Romans 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. Friends, we are dead in our sins, separated from God, born as rebels, and we are completely dependent on God. No, dear friend, here is your only true hope, not in yourselves to resolve to do better or stop doing this or quit that habit or, or, or commit to doing this or that or the other. No, friends, your only true hope is a merciful God who, listen to this, delights, delights in saving cheats like Jacob and you and me. Delights in it. Friend, therein lies your hope. Not in yourself, not in a principle for better living. Your hope lies in a God who delights in saving tricksters like you and me. Well, how can we dwell on such glorious truths? without getting an at-bat from our favorite pinch hitter, Uncle Chuck, (laughs) Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor back in London in the mid-1800s. I've read this quote so many times, some of you think it's in the Bible. It's not. (laughs) But it is a beautiful one. And if you're not yet a Christian, and you're wondering whether God could love you or what it takes for you to receive this type of grace, listen to these words and let yourself be drawn to the beautiful, free, certain, home-bringing grace of God. Spurgeon says this, Come in your disorder. I mean, come to your heavenly Father. In all your sin and sinfulness, come to Jesus just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you that are the very sweepings of creation, Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not come for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you? I put it in the language of the text. And the text he's referring to is Romans 4, 5 that says, God justifies the ungodly. I put it in the language of the text. And I cannot put it more strongly. The Lord God himself takes to himself the gracious title, Him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just Those who by nature are ungodly. Oh, is not that a wonderful word for you? Do not delay till you have considered this matter well. Unbelieving friend, come to the free, sovereign grace of God and be sure that he can bring you safely In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And if your heart is pounding out of your chest and you're thinking this might be you, friend, that is, I believe, 
evidence that God, by his Holy Spirit, is bringing you to faith in Jesus. Don't run off to a to-do list or a resolution. Fall back into grace and look to Jesus and trust in him and be sure that he will bring you safely home. Let's pray. Father, just as you set your love on Jacob and set your love on the nation that came from him, you have set your love on us. Therefore, we can be sure that you will bring us safely home. Let that produce humility, worship, confidence, and abandon in your people. And let that truth ring so gloriously beautiful and loud and true in anybody's heart in this room that is not yet trusting in Christ and let it melt their heart of stone and woo them to the grace of God that delights in bringing glory to himself by saving another unworthy, ungodly trickster. And let that person turn from trusting in themselves and turn from their own resolve and turn from human will and exertion and turn in faith and love to Jesus even now. Do that, friend. Look to Christ. Cast your gaze on him. Give your heart to him. Call out to him even now. And say, Father, you are my only hope. Christ has stood in my place on the cross. I hope in him alone. Father, do this, we pray. For the glory of your name. For the good of your people. In Jesus' name.